hymn we just sang. Your work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Your blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. And that's really what Paul was arguing for in this uh, letter. And so I've entitled the message, Consensus Without Compromise. Consensus Without Compromise. Politics, we are told, is the art of consensus. It's a matter, therefore, of getting the balance right. And it's especially so, and we in Australia have experienced that in the last few years, when you have a minority government, when no one party holds an absolute uh, power. And as we know, of course, at the moment, the Australian Labor Party is a minority government. And so it has to keep working with those who give them that balance of power and try and keep them happy. And it's true in the House of Representatives and it's true in the Senate at the moment that it only has a majority through consensus, through consensus. And uh, I like to buy the Weekend Australian. I don't know what newspapers you buy, but there are often examples there in the news of how the government is trying to govern by consensus. It might be in relation to refugees, and they're having a lot of trouble doing that, aren't they? Or it might be in relation to poker machines, uh, and they're having a lot of trouble getting this consensus so that they can make legislation. But in the very real sense at the moment, consensus is the name of the game. And consensus in political terms very often means compromise. Consensus very often means compromise. Now the Christian life has sometimes been called a balancing act because there are numerous doctrines, numerous teachings that we need to keep in balance with one another. The, the Bible makes it clear that God is sovereign, but it also talks about human responsibility. And it's not easy necessarily to keep those two in balance. Uh, the Bible quite clearly talks about doing good works, but then it says, but don't trust in them to get you to heaven. The Bible clearly talks about being in the world and yet not being of the world. All of these things need to be kept in balance. But I want to suggest to you that Christianity is different to politics because whereas politics is often consensus with compromise, the gospel must always be consensus without compromise. And that's really what Paul is driving home here. And in the, in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, we, we find this, this consensus without compromise clearly demonstrated. I mean, uh, the compromise, and there is a compromise suggested here, not by Paul, but it, this is why he's writing, and you see it in the, the part from Acts as well, the compromise, it seems little enough and surely it doesn't matter all that much. Just As well as believing in Jesus to be saved, you have to be circumcised. And what's the big deal? That's really what some of these compromises are suggesting. 
So my question for you to consider today as we look at this is, can there be consensus without compromise? Is it possible? Well, we have a test case, don't we? In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1, we've got this test case. Fourteen years later, I, that of course is Paul, went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. So there's, there's the stage that is set. Paul made a number of visits to Jerusalem, and it's not always easy to work out just how many they were. But in chapter 1 and verse 18, uh, he tells us that some three years after his conversion, he went there. And on that occasion, he saw just Peter and James. And here he tells us of another visit. He says 14 years later. Well, we're not sure. Does that 14 years later mean 14 years after his conversion or 14 years after his last visit? In a sense, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's probably the visit referred to in Acts chapter 11, which we didn't read. But uh, it tells us also that this visit, this particular visit, was undertaken in response to a revelation he'd been given. And, <coughs> excuse me, remember now, Paul's been a Christian for at least 14 years, uh, and he and Barnabas, they've already undertaken their first missionary journey, and as a result of that first missionary journey, some Jews and many Gentiles have become believers. So Paul has been preaching the gospel of God's free grace for some time. And from chapter 1, if we look at the whole of chapter 1, we know he's in no doubt that he's been called to be an apostle and that he's in no doubt that the gospel that he is preaching was given to him by God. Nevertheless, to me at least it seems, that God has revealed to him the necessity and the usefulness of going to Jerusalem and checking that the gospel he is preaching is the same as the gospel that the other apostles are preaching. No harm in, in checking it out. And, of course, we can remember the, the, the words of Solomon. In a multitude of counsellors, there is safety. And so Paul doesn't go on his own. He takes Barnabas with him and Titus. Barnabas, of course, is a Jew. Titus is a Greek or a Gentile, whichever way you want to look at it, a non-Jew. Barnabas was already well-known in Jerusalem. Uh, Barnabas was not actually his birth name, it was his nickname. He was the son of encouragement. He was well known in Jerusalem. But Titus, Titus was an unknown. And the three of them go to Jerusalem. And I suggest to you that a careful reading of what Paul writes here is an indication that Titus is a test case. Titus is taken along quite deliberately. Uh, and the test case is, is to be What's going to be the answer to the question, is there going to be consensus that the gospel teaches that it's through Christ alone that we can be saved? So here's the scenario. Uh, on some occasion, we don't know when, uh, but on some occasion under Paul's preaching, this man Titus had become a Christian. Having, uh, and being a Greek and not a Jew, he, he wasn't circumcised when he was a baby, when he was eight days old, which was the Jewish uh, custom. Nor had he been circumcised when he became a Christian. Paul did not compel him to, and neither did Barnabas. 
Why not? Well, Paul had preached that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Circumcision didn't get a look in. Salvation was not grace plus. Salvation was not faith plus. Salvation was not Christ plus. And brethren, the gospel has not changed. The gospel has not changed. Paul is convinced, as we see, that he is right because he's received this revelation from God. And Barnabas obviously agrees with him. And while the leaders of the church in Jerusalem were not the source of Paul's authority, to be seen in consensus with them would be very valuable. It's a bit like justice. No, we say justice not only needs to be done, justice needs to be seen to be done. And so Paul was preaching the gospel and Peter and James were preaching the gospel. It would be good to be seen that they were all preaching the same gospel. So the three of them, Paul and Barnabas and Titus, they go up to Jerusalem. And private discussions are held. Do we, do we have to or can we reach a consensus? Titus has become a Christian. Here's the question. He's become a Christian. Does he have to be circumcised? And the consensus without compromise is found in verse 3, isn't it? Verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. How can this be? Well, put it very simply, circumcision doesn't and cannot save. It's no use putting your trust in it. Christ and Christ alone saves. He's the only one worth trusting. So this consensus is reached without compromise. But why had it been raised at all? Why had it been raised at all? Well, we're given the answer in the first part of verse 4 because we're told that some false brothers, some sham Christians, some pseudo-Christians, if you like, had infiltrated the ranks of the believers. And these people are not named, yet their influence is very destructive. And it's not who they are so much as how they operate and what they bring about that's important. Like, like Satan, in effect, they can appear to be like an angel of light. Very, very uh, deceptive. I mean, who would suspect these people of, of nasty tricks? And they've, they've infiltrated, uh, Paul says, to spy out. Well, the best spies are those who you wouldn't even dream of them being spies. And that's how they do their business. No one notices their infiltration because they don't appear to be infiltrators. It's only after they've been accepted that the infection spreads. And for what purpose had these false brethren infiltrated the ranks of the Christians in the region of Galatia? Well, we're told in the remainder of verse 4, they had done this to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. 
Well, what is this freedom that we have in Christ Jesus? It's the freedom from trying to justify ourselves before God. You know, by having more ticks than we have crosses. Christ Jesus set us free from the law of sin and death. Christ Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Christ Jesus, by one suffering up, offering up himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, reconciles us to God. And if the Son makes us free, then we are free indeed. And to make us slaves, as what these people wanted to do, is to remove that freedom and put us back under subjection. But the way they put it, it seems so harmless. Titus wants to be a Christian. He wants to be uh, a full-blown Christian. Terrific. That's fine. There's just one little thing he has to do. He has to be circumcised. Today, of course, the focus is not on circumcision. The focus can be on baptism. There are denominations that teach that unless you are baptised, you cannot go to heaven. When we lived uh, out near Penrith, west of Sydney, uh, neighbours two down from us, they belonged to a branch of the church that said, you want to get to heaven, you've got to be baptised. And Paul would be as vehemently opposed to that as he was so vehemently opposed to circumcision. Why? Because the truth of the gospel is at stake. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Another parallel uh, might be if, if it was taught that church membership added anything to your being a Christian, your standing as a Christian. You know, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good that you're a, a Christian, but if you want to be a, a fully blown Christian, then you ought to come into church membership. No, no, no. Membership is a recognition of who you are and of what you are. It doesn't make you something, something extra. It certainly doesn't make you a Christian. But look, this, this false teaching, it, it, it's as that Paul opposed so strongly, it needed to be nipped in the bud right there and then. And it's a pity that over the decades of, and centuries of church history that on many occasions people have not acted as, as strongly as Paul did. You see, it, over the first thousand years of the church, all sorts of teachings were just, just added on and just added on and each one in itself didn't seem to be particularly harmful. But by the time we get to the 16th century, Reformation is most definitely overdue. Most definitely overdue. But what I'm saying is that, that if steps had been taken along the way, then perhaps we'd never have reached such an impasse. And uh, if liberalism, if we come to the... 20th century, if liberalism had been opposed in the early years of the 20th century, then the church would not be perhaps so much on the back foot as it is today. And if the theory of evolution had been tackled more wisely, 
It would not have the grip that it has today in scientific circles and in many parts of the church. And in our day and age, perhaps you may not have heard of it, but there is what is called the prosperity gospel. You name it and you claim it, and God will give it to you, whatever it is, whatever you want. And all those things need to be as strongly opposed as Paul opposed adding circumcision to the list of requirements. The thing is, of course, that all these heresies start so inconspicuously. But if they add to or if they subtract from the gospel of God's free grace in Christ, then they must be opposed. And it's, therefore, it's no wonder that, that today, even today, we are called to be on our guard. Because it can come in some other form as well and catch us unawares. Back in the days when I went to high school, we had the army cadets. Perhaps that was true for you as well. And we always had someone, always had someone who had trouble in keeping in step. At least that's how the majority saw it. The, the guy who couldn't keep in step reckoned everyone else was out of step. Uh, when I went, I won't say how many years ago, when I went to my 50 years since leaving school reunion back uh, in Sydney, I was amazed at how much all the other guys had changed. You know, if Paul had gone to Jerusalem and if he had discovered that the, apostle, the apostles were out of step, things would have been very grim, wouldn't they? It was as well to check that all of them were in step with each other. Peter Barnes, who I've mentioned before, minister at Reesby Presbyterian Church in Sydney and a lecturer in church history. And if you get the Australian Presbyterian, which sadly is not going to be published anymore, but if you got the Australian Presbyterian, Peter Barnes often had an article on the back page. He puts it this way. He said, in Galatians 1, Paul asserted his independence from the other apostles. He did not derive his apostleship from them. In fact, he had only met a couple of them. Nevertheless, Paul declares that though his apostleship was independent in terms of origin, it was not so in terms of content. Different origin, same content. But it struck me reading these few verses that Paul's way of of referring to to Peter and James and John is a little unusual, isn't it? In in verse 2, he refers to those who seemed to be leaders. In verse 6, he refers to those who seemed to be important. And in verse 9, he refers to those reputed to be pillars. And he's talking about Peter and James and John. I can't help thinking that there was some tension in the air. I mean, why else use the words seemed and reputed? But if that's the case, the pressure to have consensus through through compromise would have been quite strong, wouldn't it? Let's see if we can come up with something with which we can be reasonably happy. I mean, governments do that all the time. 
But praise God, that's not necessary here. It's not necessary here. There's consensus, yes, but there's no, no compromise. Important as they may have been seen in, to be in men's eyes, uh, they did this without adding anything to Paul's message. He tells us in verse 6. In verse 7, on the contrary, they saw that as that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter had been to the Jews. And how could they confirm that so that people knew it, not just heard it, but knew it? Well, verse 9, James, Peter and John gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship as they recognised the grace that had been given to them. And as for Titus, the man in the middle, nothing else was required of him. Nothing else was required of him. You, 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 from the passage we read in Acts, they said, you know, refrain from this and that. But they said nothing. It's conspicuous by its absence. They said nothing about the need to be circumcised. Because, you know, Paul, Titus, just like Peter and James and John and Paul and Barnabas, Titus is saved by grace through faith. And through this consensus without compromise, that clear gospel message is kept fully intact. And if I can refer back to one thing that I said when we were looking at uh, verses 6 to 10 of chapter 1, it doesn't matter who it is, whoever's in the pulpit here from week to week, or whether it's the, the, the moderator or the interim moderator of the charge, or the moderator of the presbytery, or the moderator of the Victorian Assembly, or the moderator general of the Presbyterian Church of Australia, or whether it's a bishop, or an archbishop, or a pope, or an angel from heaven, check what is said against God's word. Check what is said against God's word. And if they're wrong, do not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. That makes verse 10 sort of an anti-climax, doesn't it? All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I mean, Paul's been addressing this enormously important question of just what is the gospel? But you see, having gained consensus without compromise, he tells us that both he and the pillars of the church should continue to remember the poor. I mean, were the pillars just trying to save face? Well, no, no, they weren't. Because, you see, salvation, that is being in a right relationship with God, being justified by grace through faith and only through faith in Christ and only in Christ, that has consequences. Yes, there are consequences. Let me, could I refer you to the parable of the unforgiving servant? Because he was graciously forgiven uh, an enormous debt that he had no possible way of repaying, the consequence was that he was expected to forgive a fellow servant who owed him a trifling amount in comparison. And the parallel is this, that if, if, if we are Christians, God's graciousness to us, to you, who were in such spiritual need, when I say you, I'm not excluding myself. We're all in such spiritual need. Should lead us to be gracious to others. 
who are in such spiritual need. But also to consider their material needs. Martin Luther, as I've said before, often has a way of of putting things very sharply. He put it this way, he said, After the preaching of the gospel, the office and charge of a true and faithful pastor is to be mindful of the poor. And the thing is, you see, that once we have consensus without compromise on the truths of the gospel, then we can unite in doing good works. Martin Luther, once again, he says, In matters of faith, in matters of faith, we ought to be harder than the adamant stone. In matters of love, we ought to be softer than a leaf in the wind. The things we dare not, we cannot compromise in relation to faith, the gospel. Consensus must be, in that regard, without compromise. And that's a challenge, isn't it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the fact that you have made it so clear in your word that salvation is all of grace only through faith and only through the merits of the Lord Jesus Lord help us ourselves individually and as a congregation and as a denomination to remain true to these essential truths without compromising them and living out our faith in a way which is of benefit to others. Oh Lord, help us, help the church in these days to do these things, to your honour and to your glory, and for the truth of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.